0: Welcome. You're listening to Blood Advances Talks. Blood Advances Talks are scholarly review articles that are presented in an audio format and published in the American Society of Hematology's open access journal, Blood Advances. Transcripts for Blood Advances Talks undergo the same rigorous peer review process as all articles published in Blood Advances and can be downloaded by visiting bloodadvances.org. We thank you for listening.
1: My name is Jim Ducatis. I'm an internist and thrombosis physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton in Canada and professor of medicine at McMaster University. This podcast will deal with the perioperative management of patients who are receiving either a vitamin K antagonist, such as warfarin, or a direct oral anticoagulant and who require an elective surgery or procedure. The perioperative management of patients who are receiving warfarin is an increasingly common clinical problem as the prevalence of conditions such as atrial fibrillation that require long-term anticoagulant therapy with warfarin or with a direct oral anticoagulant, or DOAC for short, increases in part due to an aging population. Elderly patients are also more likely to require a surgery or procedure than younger patients. The approach to the perioperative management of such patients involves addressing the following questions. First, is anticoagulant interruption needed? Second, is heparin bridging needed for patients who interrupt warfarin? And third, how do we interrupt and resume DOACs perioperatively? Additional relevant management issues relate to how to bridge patients during warfarin interruption and the role of coagulation function testing in perioperative management. There are several minor dental, eye, skin, and cardiac device procedures and surgeries that are considered minimal bleed risk in which anticoagulant interruption may not be needed. Heparin bridging can be considered in a minority of warfarin-treated patients with atrial fibrillation, in most patients with a mechanical prosthetic heart valve, and infrequently in patients with venous thromboembolism. For patients who are receiving a DOAC, management is anchored on the procedure or surgery-related bleed risk. Thromboembolic risk is less important because of the rapid offset and onset of DOACs. Patients having a low to moderate bleed risk surgery or procedure require one full day off DOACs before and after the surgery procedure, whereas those patients having a high bleed risk surgery procedure require two full days off DOACs before and after the surgery procedure. Perioperative heparin bridging and coagulation function testing are not needed for perioperative DOAC management. The management of patients who are receiving warfarin or a direct oral anticoagulant, also known as a DOAC, and require an elective surgery or procedure is a frequently enc- encountered clinical problem with over 2 million people assessed in North America each year. What type of patients are, are we referring to? Most of these uh, patients have atrial fibrillation who are receiving warfarin or a DOAC, and in this group, that is increasing as the population ages, are most likely compared with other age groups to require a surgery or procedure. Less commonly assessed are patients with a mechanical heart valve, all of whom would be receiving warfarin, and patients with venous thromboembolism who are receiving warfarin or DOAC. In this podcast, we will discuss how to manage such patients. Specifically, to help the clinician determine first, if anticoagulant interruption is needed. Second, if heparin bridging is needed for patients who interrupt warfarin. And third, how to interrupt and resume DOAX perioperatively. We will also discuss how to bridge patients during warfarin interruption and the role of coagulation function testing in perioperative management. The first issue is whether interruption of anticoagulants is needed. There are several minor procedures and surgeries where anticoagulants can be continued safely without interruption. These include uncomplicated tooth extractions, endodontic or root canal procedures, skin biopsies, cataract surgeries, and selected colonoscopy procedures. In addition, placement of a permanent pacemaker or an internal cardiac defibrillator or ICD as well as cardiac catheterization, can be done without stopping anticoagulants. There are, however, several caveats to the management of such patients who would be classified as undergoing a procedure associated with a minimal bleed risk. First, any of these simple procedures could be considered as having a higher bleed risk warranting anticoagulant interruption. For example, a tooth extraction in a patient with dental caries and poor gingival hygiene or cataract surgery with retrobalbar instead of topical anesthesia may warrant anticoagulant interruption. Second, in patients who are receiving a DOAC, it is prudent to skip the morning dose just before the procedure, because if a DOAC is taken the peak anticoagulant effect, which occurs one to three hours after intake may coincide with the timing of the procedure and may increase the risk for bleeding. Third, in the case of pacemaker or ICD implantation, patients can continue warfarin, but the international normalized ratio or INR should be less than three, ideally closer to two at the time of the procedure. Fourth, In the case of coronary angiography, continuing anticoagulants if a femoral artery approach is used may not be advisable as such patients are at increased risk for developing a groin hematoma or false aneurysm. Fifth, in the case of colonoscopy, anticoagulation can be continued in patients where the likelihood of polypectomy is low. For example, in a younger patient or someone who has had a prior colonoscopy, whereas interruption would be required if the likelihood of polypectomy is higher. A brief discussion with the proceduralist prior to the endoscopy can provide a patient-centered approach to ensure optimal anticoagulant management. And finally, in dental procedures, oral tranexamic acid mouthwash can be used before and two to three times daily after the procedure to reduce bleeding since such oral bleeding, although clinically unimportant, may cause undue distress to patients. Let's move on now to talk about is heparin bridging needed during warfarin interruption? Heparin bridging is considered for patients who require perioperative warfarin interruption and typically consists of giving a low molecular weight heparin or LMWH, for three days before a surgery or procedure while the warfarin effect is receding and for four to six days after a surgery or procedure while the warfarin is attaining a therapeutic level after resumption. Although there is no standardized heparin bridging regimen, it is typically a full dose or therapeutic dose LMWH, such as Inoxaparin, 1 milligram per kilogram BID, or deltaparin, 100 international units per kilogram BID. The therapeutic premise of heparin bridging is that it shortens the time around the surgery or procedure that patients are not fully anticoagulated while warfarin is interrupted and thereby aims to mitigate the risk for stroke and other arterial thromboembolism. This premise can be questioned because heparin bridging may have little or no effect on factors that can predispose to perioperative stroke and other arterial thromboembolic events. Such factors include intraoperative blood pressure control and the type of surgery, especially cardiac surgery, carotid endarterectomy, and other vascular surgery. In patients with atrial fibrillation who are receiving warfarin, there is evidence from the BRIDGE randomized trial that heparin bridging not only had no effect on preventing arterial thromboembolism, but also increased the risk for serious bleeding. Thus, rates of arterial thromboembolism were 0.3% in the 950 patients who were bridged and 0.4% in the 934 patients who were not bridged, but rates of major bleeding were significantly higher in patients who were bridged, 3.2% versus 1.3% in those who were not bridged. One caveat to the BRIDGE trial findings is that heparin bridging might be considered in selected high-risk patients, including those with a CHADS2 score of five to six, which corresponds to a chads vast score of seven to nine, or those who have had perioperative thromboembolism during prior interruption of warfarin. The value added aspect of this trial is that it shows us how to bridge if bridging is used, but more about this later. In patients with a mechanical heart valve who require warfarin interruption, heparin bridging should be considered, especially in patients with a mitral valve prosthesis or any older tilting disc or caged ball prosthesis, but some emerging evidence may alter this management. In the PERIOP2 trial, patients with a mechanical heart valve who had perioperative warfarin interruption all received preoperative heparin bridging with a full-dose LMWH regimen. Postoperatively, patients resumed heparin bridging with a reduced dose in patients who had a high bleeding risk surgery or procedure, or they received no bridging. With this approach, there was no difference in arterial thromboembolism, that is 0.67% versus 0%, or no difference in major bleeding, that is 0.67% versus 1.96% in patients who received postoperative bridging or no bridging. However, this trial was limited as only 304 patients with mechanical valves were studied, and only 40% had mechanical mitral valves. So this study suggests that post-operative bridging might be unnecessary in lower risk patients overall the evidence supporting a bridging or no bridging strategy in patients with a mechanical heart valve is limited and there's a need for additional research to inform best practices finally in patients with venous thromboembolism who require warfarin interruption heparin bridging is infrequently required and should be considered only in patients who have had recent, that is within three months, thromboembolism or those with a severe thrombophilia, such as the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. In patients who require warfarin interruption, preoperative INR testing is not routinely needed, that is in all patients, but it can be considered in patients having a high bleederate surgery Or any neuraxial anesthesia. If it is done, an INR greater than 1.5 on the day before the surgery can be managed by giving 1 to 2 milligrams of oral vitamin K. After surgery, INR testing can be done in patients who are receiving postoperative heparin bridging to determine when the INR is greater than 2.0 and when bridging can be stopped. Now let's move on to discuss how to interrupt and resume direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, perioperatively. An increasing number of patients are receiving a DOAC, comprising apixaban, dabigatran, edoxaban, or rivaroxaban, for stroke prevention and in atrial fibrillation, and, less commonly, for the prevention of recurrent venous thromboembolism. In DOAC-treated patients who require treatment and interruption for an elective surgery or procedure, patient management is anchored on the bleeding risk associated with the surgery or procedure. The thromboembolic risk is less important because of the short off anticoagulant period with DOACs, which have a rapid offset and onset of action. A high bleed risk surgery or procedure includes patients having major abdominal surgery, for example, cancer resections, major thoracic surgery, major orthopedic surgery, and any cardiac, spinal, or intracranial surgery. In addition, any patient having neuroaxial anesthesia is classified as high bleed risk because of the risk for epidural hematomas which can cause lower limb paralysis. A low to moderate bleederous surgery procedure includes most surgeries that are less than one hour duration and procedures that do not involve neuraxial anesthesia. Let's go and discuss preoperative management. Patients having a high bleederous surgery procedure should be off dox for a full two days before the procedure, corresponding to a 60 to 68-hour interval between the last DOAC dose and the time of the surgery or procedure, which means that there is little or no residual anticoagulant effect present at the time of the surgery, given the 12 to 15-hour half-life of DOACs. Patients having a low to moderate bleed risk surgery procedure should be off DOACs for one full day before the procedure, corresponding to a 36 to 42 hour interval between the last dose and the surgery or procedure. In all patients, no DOAC is taken on the day of the surgery or procedure. The exception to this approach is patients who are on dabigatran and have impaired renal function defined by creatinine clearance less than 50 ml per minute. Because dabigatran is cleared primarily by the kidney, a longer interruption interval is needed of four days and two days before a high bleed risk and before a low to moderate bleed risk surgery procedure respectively. What about post-operative management? The post-operative resumption of DOACs should mirror pre-operative interruption. Thus, wait at least 24 hours after a low to moderate bleed risk surgery procedure and wait 48 to 72 hours after a high bleed risk surgery procedure to resume DOAX. An easy way to remember this approach is one day off before and after a low to moderate bleed risk surgery procedure, and two days off before and after a high-bleed risk surgery procedure. The exception to this approach, again, is that patients on dabigatran with a creatinine clearance less than 50 ml per minute require an additional one to two days interruption before a surgery procedure. This management approach was assessed in the prospective management study, PAUSE, which studied 3,007 DOAC treated patients of whom 1,257 were taking apixaban, 668 were taking dabigatran, and 1,082 were taking rivaroxaban and who all required an elective surgery or procedure. The strategy of standardized DOAC interruption and resumption without perioperative bridging and no preoperative coagulation testing appeared safe as the 30-day postoperative rates of arterial thromboembolism and major bleeding were less than 1% and less than 2%, respectively. There are two caveats to post-operative DOAC management. First, the 48 to 72-hour resumption interval can be extended if there is greater than expected postoperative bleeding, which is important because unlike with restarting warfarin, which takes four to five days to have an anticoagulant effect, the full anticoagulant effect of DOACs is almost immediate after oral intake. Second, in patients who are unable to take medications by mouth, and who are at high risk for venous thromboembolism, low-dose LMWH can be given for the initial one to three post-operative days. We're going to finish off by discussing how to bridge patients with heparin. For patients who need heparin bridging, the approach used in the BRIDGE trial can be followed. Preoperatively, patients are off warfarin for five days and start LMWH, or low molecular and heparin bridging, three days before the procedure, for example, with Daltaparin, 100 international units per kilogram twice daily, with the last dose of LMWH given on the morning of the day before the surgery procedure. Postoperatively, warfarin can be started on the same evening, typically with the patient's usual maintenance dose. Bridging can be resumed no earlier than 24 hours postoperatively after a low to moderate bleed risk surgery procedure and should be delayed for 48 to 72 hours after a high bleed risk surgery procedure. One caveat for postoperative management is that patients' usual warfarin dose can be doubled for one to two days after the surgery procedure to expedite the attainment of a therapeutic level INR. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: You've been listening to Blood Advances Talks. Please visit bloodadvances.org for more audio reviews and for information on how to subscribe to the Blood Advances Talks podcast. A full transcript of this podcast can be found online. Music for Blood Advances Talks was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening.